We welcome Ismay to the stage of the Phoenix Theater. Ismay is a band representing the work of Petaluma's own singer-songwriter Avery Hellman. Her work has been deeply influenced by the landscape of the American West, those who write about it, and the social and environmental movements that work within it. Tonight we'll discuss those things, what drives her as an artist, what she's put herself into the music, and later she will play some of that very music with a full band. Please welcome to the program, Ismay. Howdy doody. Howdy, howdy doody. Howdy, howdy doody. I think a good place to start would be your personal mission with this project. Mm. You shared it with me earlier this week, and I think it would be a great thesis statement for this episode. So anything you want to share on that front, I think would be a good way to start. Yeah, well, I like to say that the intention behind Ismay is to bring together the arts and the environment. And the reason for that is because I feel like it's really difficult to demonstrate the importance of environmental issues and the deep connection people have to those issues without the arts. And also, I think that the arts are always clearly informed by our environment. And that's kind of the mission statement behind Ismay. Why do you feel such a connection to the environment? Hmm. I think my reason for feeling such a deep connection to the environment is because just as with music, some of my most profound experiences in life have been in the environment and related to it. Um, I also feel a lot more fulfilled in my life when I'm more integrated into the environment and to whether it's doing farm work or gardening or traveling in the natural world, having those experiences makes me feel more at peace with myself. Um, I would say my connection to the natural environment is similar to music in that they kind of, um, they, what's the word, they kind of go above, they kind of uh, transcend, transcend. The environment and the arts are both things people deeply connect to that transcend daily life and transcend what we perceive as the world in front of us. Um, And in that sense, those two are really connected. I think for people for whom they really need that feeling a lot in their life, the arts and the environment provide that a lot for them. You have said that nearly every aspect of this band, uh, and you are the uh, primary lyricist and songwriter for this band, um, has uh, a deeper meaning, including the name itself. And I would love it if you could go into some background as to why you chose this name. Yeah, I was looking for a name back when I started this project about three years ago. And one of the great places to find band names for anybody that's looking is in books, because they provide you a vocabulary of places and things that you would never think of in your daily life. So I read a book that was called Badland. That's a nonfiction book about the Badlands of Montana. And there is a small town out there called Ismay that was named after a railroad magnate's children, Isabel and May. And so they combined the names for Ismay. And they also renamed their town Joe Montana in the 1990s, Uh, (laughs) (laughs) which I found hilarious. And 
So I just kind of read that chapter of the book, read that, and I thought, that's it. That's the name I've been looking for. And so that book talks about the unforgiving landscape of eastern Montana. Um, this might be a throwaway prompt, or maybe it isn't. Um, was that book in any way significant to you? I mean, did you go to that book because you thought, all right, uh, this book is very, very powerful? Or was it just a name you remembered from a book you read at some point? Yeah, I would say that book was pretty powerful to me. It wasn't the most powerful amongst books, but I love books that talk about people's connection with land, and in, in particular, the books that discuss the history of land use and the history of European Americans coming and the ideology behind why they came and what they did with the land and what the result of their actions was. The often not good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That that should just be like the summary on a bumper sticker. So they just like European Americans came often not often good. Not. <laughs> that reminds me of something about your Klamath adventure, but I I cannot spoil this because not everybody knows everything in your life uh, yet. After they listen to this episode, they'll know some of it. <laughs> I always find defining moments in an artist's life to be fascinating, and yours is no different. You took an adventure a few years ago that was transformational for you, and I think that we can't really have any sort of conversation about the album, about this project, about your artistic identity nowadays w without telling that story. So mm -hmm. could you share with us what led you on that journey and what transpired? Yeah. I'll keep it short. I Please go don't. Okay, go, okay. Go, I won't keep heavy. it too short. Yeah. So, when I was 18 years old, when I was born, when I went, no, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to first. Sorry. When I was 18 years old, um, I went to college and I began playing music. I loved playing music and it meant a lot to me, but I was in a school where it wasn't necessarily encouraged that that was going to be the end goal of my life. So I went and performed while I was in school, and I also studied environmental science. And finally, I had gone for two years to university, and I was really, really depressed. I just couldn't understand why it seemed normal to other people. I was struggling so much. It seemed to me it was so obvious, but it seemed like nobody else could see it. So I finally, after going back to school and trying to start the third year, I just couldn't go for one more day or one more hour. I just couldn't let myself do that. So I decided to leave school and I just decided the way I felt wasn't right, that there was something in me telling me what was happening was wrong. So I left college, not necessarily to pursue music, but I just kept pursuing music because I loved playing music. And at that time, I moved to New Mexico for a couple months. Um, from Berkeley, I was living in Berkeley, California, moved to New Mexico. And there I continued to play music and perform. And I went on my first ever major tour. I started <laughs> performing and I didn't realize when you go on your first tour, you don't have to go for a whole month. So I was like, I'm just gonna go for a whole month. That's what you have to do, right? And it was not true. So I went out for a month, had a pretty stressful time, but on that trip, um, playing music and touring around and playing very bizarre shows. I drove up 101, and if you notice when you're going up 101, um, kind of at the end part in California when you're getting close to Oregon, there's a bridge with golden bears on either side, and when you cross that bridge, you're crossing over the Klamath River. 
And I saw that river and I remembered having learned about it in school and just found its history really fascinating. And at the same time was kind of looking for a purpose um, beyond what I was doing then. And I really wanted to take a horseback journey and combine that with music in some way. I don't know why, but I was just really driven to do that. So I focused on the Klamath River and then I spent a couple years traveling um, to the Klamath River and looking at all these trail maps and meeting with people there. And I finally found a route that was 300 miles, um, pretty much along the length of the Klamath um, that you can ride on horse, you could walk it. It's not a trail per se, um, but you can go on it. You could, you can't ride, you can't drive all the way. Um, but you could walk. So I worked for a few years, um, moving back to my parents' ranch in Petaluma and trained some horses for it and trained myself for it and took other trips. And finally, after all that preparation, I went up to the Klamath River in sort of a sense that this one project had really given my life um, a new focus and purpose. Um, In addition to music, they were really connected to each other. So I went up to the Klamath River, and I really wanted to do this month-long journey on horseback. But I just found I was out there, and it had meant so much to me, but it had just become something different. What I wanted from that had become different. My life was different. I was a different person than when I chose to do that project. So I was out on the trail, and I just had this thought over and over again, what I'm doing is really dangerous, and I just don't want to die for this, like, before, because my life wasn't great, if I had died on the Klamath River because of that horseback trip, I just don't know. At the time, I was like, okay with that when I was planning it. But once I got there, I had different things in my life that just meant a lot more to me. I had music. Music was getting more and more um, a part of my life, too. And so I was like, I just don't want to die here. I just had this intense fear of dying on the river and not getting to do all the other things I wanted to do with my life, in particular music. So I was very stressed out. I had made it about 50 miles down the river of the 300-mile journey, and I just I didn't want to let myself give up because it was so important to me that I had accomplished this for whatever reason. And I was staying at my friend's house, and it wasn't a house. It was a failed subdivision off of I-5 <laughs> um, where they had um, wild horses. And I was staying there with my two horses and mules, very stressed out. And I just intended to keep going the next day. But that one of the nights we were there, a herd of wild stallions came down from the mountain and they broke down an electric fence that my horses had been protected in. And the two horses, which were formerly wild horses themselves, they fought off the stallions. They were used to it, but the mule was a lot more docile. So they took her and ran off into the wilderness. And so I kind of took that (laughs) as a sign in some sense and an out. It was kind of an out for me. Um, I could still do my project about the Klamath. I could still go interview people and learn about it, but I realized I just couldn't do this full 300 mile journey. So I went home and I went back up to look for Fern. So you said that when you were on this trip, the Klamath River began to feel alive uh, and the stories fascinated you. Uh, This experience helped shape your story and it became something different than you originally thought, but it became something very important, this this journey. Mm. Um, It's wild. I mean, do you look at the person you were before this and in some ways is it unrecognizable to you? Uh, the way you look at your life now? Because it seems like before this trip, you were in a pretty 
not great place. Yeah, it was really, really hard to deal with the aftermath of what I saw as a really big failure, which was that experience. Before the meal was stolen, I was a person who at first was feeling like I was at a place like many other people do, um, feeling like I was being pushed towards being a way that wasn't how I wanted to be. Through the Klamath River in this project, I had channeled all my energy into being really driven towards this one thing that I thought defined me. So I went from two extremes of doing what other people wanted and feeling like I had to fit in the mold to this extreme of doing exactly what I wanted and thinking that this purpose was going to save me. After losing my ability to control that situation and knowing that I couldn't just do things to save myself (laughs) and I couldn't just always be driven by my goals, um, that really changed me. It's been, I'm still in the process of changing now. Um, I'm still in the process of forgiving myself for being imperfect, I guess. Yeah. How, how long ago was that trip? That was May of last year. Yeah. Okay, so not that long ago. You posted a story on the Ismay site last year from someone you met on the adventure named Dean McBroom. Mm-hmm. Um, it recounted the Shasta creation story. And it talked about how the Klamath River just generally changes the people that come to it. Do you think you could share a little bit of that with us on this program? Because I, I, obviously it touched you enough mm-hmm. to record that person to put it on your website. It touched me. Um, the creation story is interesting, but the way the river changes people was yeah. like really insightful, I thought. So anything you want to share about what Dean shared, I think would be great. Yeah. He said that... Hmm. What Dean said, that the river changes people, I think is incredibly true. I think all environments deeply change people, but most people don't have the opportunity to acknowledge that. Even if you're living in a suburb where at times nature that is non-human can be very much suppressed, that still still very much informs you as a person. but the Klamath River in particular is a very alive and unique place. Um, it has very intense qualities to it. And one of the things I said in my record um, was that when you try to go to a place like the Klamath to see it, you never can really see it. It's a s- sort of a strange thing. Like even in memory, trying to look at a river is too strange. It's like trying to look at, I say it's like trying to look at a melody in a tune. It's just you can't pick one thing out like that. And I think being on the Klamath made me see that and perhaps made me see myself and my music and everything I do more holistically in the context of the rest of the world. Again, when you set out on this journey, I think one of the things you wanted to do, if I'm not mistaken, was document the people mm-hmm. and document the just the experiences that you find out there. So he was one of those people you met, I'm assuming, right? Yes, right. He said, only reason for man, the only reason for man is to see that there is a place for all things. And if, it, if you ignore that, then you don't belong here. Right. I thought that was a very powerful statement. Yeah, that's the philosophy I would like to live my life by in an ideal world is that the place of humans in our world is to make sure there is a place for all things. It's to take care of the land and to also 
nurture what is there and let it fully express itself. Obviously, mainstream American culture has gotten pretty far away from that. Um, and even a lot of music doesn't necessarily try to re reiterate the importance of that story that one of the purposes of people is to interact with land and to treat it in a way that it deserves to be treated because it does give so much to people. So it was really fantastic meeting Dean. It was odd. We went to our friend's place to kind of hang out and interview people. And he was the first person we interviewed. And he just kind of came in and they said, um, you know, he's kind of a quiet guy. He's, you know, he's shy. He plays music, but not really in front of people. And he just completely opened up when we interviewed him and just had these amazing little things to four say. Hours. It was about four hour interview. Wow. <laughs> and we, I mean, it was, um, and that, what you were just saying, Jim, there about um, how that, that same thing that Dean said came to me the other day about how the place of humanity is to make sure that everything has its place. And part of it is that the earlier half of that same story was, was that back when, before there were people, before there were humans, when everyone was, everything was people, but there were no humans. It was the horses and the fish and the bears and everything thought only of themselves. And that was, and everything started getting out of whack because nobody was thinking of anybody else but themselves. The trees were sucking up all the moisture and then there were places in which certain species were out competing others as so the story goes and so the now, great is this the shasta origin story yeah and yeah, okay. so that's when the great bear came down from the mountain and said this won't do i'm creating a new breed of existence that will straighten this out and another i think part of the power and so dean actually is a native person in his bloodline but you wouldn't know it looking at him at all you know when i saw him and this was you know around you know what it was may of 2017 you know recent political trauma and you know you look at the guy and you think like oh god is this guy you know a total racist or you know just because like you look at him and it's just you know that's what you look and you see that you know i'm a i'm a from from massachusetts i live in the bay area when i see a certain type of person who looks a certain way i'm like that person is likely you know not sharing my views a country but, redneck right a country uh, redneck yeah. Um, quite literally, yeah, I think that's a very honest reaction. I mean, it, 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 it and 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 the and the great thing about the story with Dean is your assumption was not true, right? Not yeah. even not in the least. And he's one of the most radical people at the core of it. And so, what what was another interesting thing about the Klamath there is that there's the upper Klamath that is more exposed to areas around Wairika, and where you know you're looking at the Klamath Falls high desert. Um, and that was a very valuable resource for the yes. pioneers. So there, all of the native peoples were exterminated yeah. ruthlessly. Yeah. And then you had another similar situation with the lower Klamath, which was much more valuable for logging and fishing yep. um, at the mouth of the river. And so another place where the natives were, were just oh, extinguished. Yeah. But the middle was very remote. And the settlers, as according to Dean, the settlers that made it to the middle realized they had to get along with the native people if they wanted to stick around and so his family was one of those families that uh, that married into the native culture and now everybody in so the middle klamath which i guess would 
be defined as you know somewhere between Willow Creek and Happy Camp, if anybody you know. Yeah, yeah. Inner t- inner part it's of the beautiful Klamath stretch of the river for for a long time is and still is extremely remote, and so anybody who you know the so people like had to get from along. From I five to one hundred one, pretty much. Then I think that whole yeah that whole area. Right, it's beautiful, yeah. beautiful area. And it's also the that area is one of the only places where. Um, Native people live and their reservation, their federally gifted reservation is actually their ancestral land. So that adds to a certain amount of, of power there because the people there are actually acquainted there. There's a certain link that's unbroken um, where it's been broken everywhere else. Almost. Yeah. There's a lot to be said about that adventure and I'm sure we'll go back to it. But that journey led to two very important projects to Ismay, to Avery Hellman and Associates. There's the unreleased short film Songs of the Klamath, which Tom has watched a couple times and referenced, and there's also the recently released EP Songs of a River. This came out earlier in 2018, and um, what a remarkable thing. You know, Avery, you, uh, if you watch your film, you planned for this trip for two years. Mm-hmm. You, you trained horses. You went through an incredible journey just to get to the journey. Really, and you've come up with an incredible piece of music, an incredible film. You've come up with a project where you're going to be talking and, and, and uh, recording more people, I think. I, I don't see why you would feel you failed anything. <laughs> you're still on that journey. The journey is not over. That's um, true. And... and <laughs> Uh, if if you feel you need to do the 267 miles, uh, you can take that up anytime you want. So yeah, I I just want to say no. I don't. I <laughs> fail to see where you have failed anything. This journey is not done. Well, and that's why I think it feels like failure, and sometimes mm-hmm. because you're not at the end of it yet. Right, I mean, but that's the journey, but the journey maybe wasn't the 300 mile thing. The journey was what you're in the midst of doing now. Yeah, which you're finding right. out as time goes on. Yeah. You've written that the works of authors like Terry Tempest Williams, Robert Bullard, and John Steinbeck have deeply influenced you as an artist. Um, you also wrote that people, and perhaps these people are included in that, people who have uh, written of the American West have influenced you. Uh, could you go into any detail on specifics there? I would say that their way of relating to the complexity of the American West really inspires me. As you can see from some of the stories I've told, I'm always interested to find how there's so many unexpected things you find when you dive deeper into the natural world or ask questions about who people are. In particular, there's a John Steinbeck book called To a God Unknown that isn't very popular, but I love the book. And it's about this man who moves to... Um, technically it's probably like Salinas or something like that and as a homesteader back in probably the late 1800s and it just tells this really incredible story of him getting married his family moving there and eventually he commits suicide after his farm falls to ruins in a drought but his suicide somehow brings back the rain I don't know if that's really his intention. That's the end of the story. If anybody wants me to ruin the story for them, I just did. Um, But I just... If you're reading Steinbeck, you don't necessarily expect it to end well. Yeah, that's true. I'm just really inspired by stories that 
that really surprise you and, and challenge the mainstream norms of how people of a certain gender, people of a certain race, how they're supposed to be and brings the complexity and the mysticism of the natural world into it. Um, Terry Tempest Williams does a great job at that too. And Robert Bullard is a man who writes about environmental justice. Um, I believe he was one of the pioneers per se of um, the environmental justice movement. And so even though those writings aren't so much um, fiction or they aren't um, stories as much, I still think that people who have written deeply and thoughtfully about environmental justice in our country really inspire me to think differently about what is nature and what are environmental issues. I've never been to this area, but what I love about the conversation we've all had so far is that it is as if you are taking a stroll through another time in another era. You uh, referenced how we are in this country in terms of how we treat the environment. It just seems like everything is, well, not everything, but a lot is different. The people you meet, the journeys you go on, how you spend your day. If you're up there uh, in an isolated place on that river, that's completely different than if you, when you're in a city in America. Mm -hmm. And there's probably something very appealing to that if you are maybe tired of the way that our culture does things. Yeah, I think one of my intentions behind telling the stories I do and the reason I seek out those stories is I still need to believe, and I think everybody needs to believe, that there's things out there that you don't know and you can't control and are amazing but shocking and completely unexpected in our world, and we can still find those things. Um, I think that a lot of times in the world we live in, it's so easy to fall into a degree of seeing the way the community is around us or the environment that we live in, it being predictable that that there being no more mystical, um, being no more mystical aspects to the rest of the world, but it's not the case. You don't even have to also go to another country to find these shocking, amazing, intense experiences. Sometimes you can just go outside <laughs> into your backyard. Yeah. And I think this would be counterintuitive to a lot of people because you're saying strip it away and you'll find the magic. A lot of people are trying to get more overloads, you know, take it to the next level, take it to the next level. But your argument would be, no, 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 that's not the answer. The answer is to kind of take it back to basics and go mm -hmm. to this place that is, or go to a place, any place. Nature is the key. Mm -hmm. You know, we're, we're, perhaps we're overstimulated. Perhaps it's time to maybe kind of get back to the roots a little bit. Well, I think that relates to the, what you were talking about with Steinbeck and something that we, were, Avery and I, were discussing earlier today that I, I want to bring up because it's just is a really interesting concept. And the European expansion throughout the United States has its, I mean, it has its own kind of self-reflexive story about not seeing what's in front of you. I mean, you have up to the Mississippi River from the colony side, essentially like a landscape that's similar to what Europeans are used to. Regular, regular rains, you have farmland that can be tilled, that can be in terms of the Steinbeck vision can be turned into this family farm that's that's like this procreative self-sustaining thing and then you cross the Mississippi and then you start having these issues with the Dust Bowl and the European mindset of what a pastoral healthy landscape doesn't work and it's not necessarily a matter of these people are stupid it's just that they didn't know what they were dealing with because it wasn't their native ground and you know 
seeing like like getting outside of this predictable not necessarily bay area specific but the american city where you can look exactly what you're going to have for dinner and how long it's going to take for them to get it to you getting outside of that and seeing and just opening yourself up to how well this this landscape of the west actually has its own power that's almost it's before the united states Mm -hmm. it's this there is this power of the west that has it operates on a totally different different mindscape or something than the east and i'm from the east and something about like capitalism loves the east because you can just pump that ohio land out or at least you maybe not forever but the topsoil is just like you can grow as much as you want year and year and year after year but it doesn't work out west and we're still in it as a country in denial about that yeah of course well, again, I mean, to to farm uh, the northern reaches of of the Klamath, they had to drain uh, a vast, and it became really great soil. Right. Once they drained that uh, the marshes, but what a terrible thing to do! And they try they wanted to ship all the water down to Southern California and, and uh, actually and to, to feed our great valley with that. We took a desert and turned it into a growing area, mm-hmm. and that was that was the European way of doing it, I guess. Right. That's what they came up with. So and how did your conversation on this conclude earlier? <laughs> Just like, boy, we have done some backward things in our history <laughs> as a society. Well, I think it's it's it kind of concluded in the similar way of of how like my first impressions of Dean were, and that, and you you approach a situation, you see there's only there's there's this one answer of how we can manage the land, and there's this one. I mean, as as the as the Europeans come out to California or the West in general, they think. They have this mind vision of like the Garden of Eden that they want to create on Earth, and whether it's Christian or not, it's sort of just we're improving the land. We want to improve the land, make highest and best use of it. It's in our laws. It's in how we think, and and so I guess it's just a matter of like just taking a step back and taking another look at what the highest and best use of land could be in this place. Um, and I guess how the conversation concluded was just that you kind of you can get into this world where you just see the inputs and outputs on your own graph of how climate change is working or how pollution is going and how the soils are getting saltier and the bees are leaving and there's all these problems. But that, again, that's your personal little rubric of inputs and outputs. And maybe if you step back, you can see that there's something else that could save this whole situation. And I mean, yeah, I don't know. I see a major connection between what you said in terms of how they looked at the land and how Avery was feeling when she made the trip mm. to go to Klamath or made the decision to make the trip. You you were being told that the highest and best use of your time was one thing, and that mm. did not mesh with the <laughs> environment of your mind, let's just say that. And yeah. so you had to make some pretty radical changes, and it was convulsive, and it was painful, mm-hmm. and it, it took a long time, and you're still in the midst of it. I mean, life is, is that way. But... Um, I, you know, it, it seems as though the direction was a good one that you headed in because, um, I mean, look at the experiences so far. Yeah, you're on a great journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's perfect. I've never thought about it like that, but I think that the way in which people came to the American West and they, instead of seeing what was in front of them, they were so obsessed and reflected upon their background that they were trying to impose it. In the American West, Europeans were seeing it so much through the lens of the way they perceived 
um, their background and the way it had to be, their religious background, their cultural background. In the same way with me, I felt like my parents, adults in my life, other people were very much seeing my path forward in the reflection of who they were. And with no intention of hurting me, only the intention of wanting the best for me, they didn't necessarily create space for an alternative to exist. Mm -hmm. And it was deeply painful to have this experience, not only of being in so much pain, but feeling like nobody would see that. Um, that's really important for people who are struggling with depression or anxiety, whatever it is. Someone, instead of saying, being so afraid that they are in pain, saying, no, 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 you're not in pain, or I have to fix it, I have to fix it, to sit back and say, just take a breath and see what that person is experiencing and let it be. That's what I wish I had had. But everybody was doing their best. So Yeah. Well, I think taking a step back, too, and you see the power and the resilience of the land. And when you're in, your, when you're in an, environmental, an environmental ethics class or if you're reading a report from the Cli Climate Summit and you see the narrow bands of what a human's measuring and you're like, we are doomed— but then when you go out there as just an open mind as like and you and you open yourself up to what the land the spirit of the land and you you find a tremendous resilience of the quality of the land as something that can heal and has oh, yes. has its own methods of staying alive that's we're only using the top crust of this planet right and when we're gone uh, that crust will rebuild itself that's yeah true. was odessa on that ep Mm -hmm. let's, uh, let's talk about the EP just for a moment or for a collection of moments. Anything you want to share in terms mm -hmm. of symbolism on that record or anything that jumps out to you uh, that you think a person just listening to it, maybe they wouldn't catch this thing. One of my favorite songs to talk about the background of is um, the last track that you can find on the EP called A Song for Odessa. Yeah. And the story behind that song is pretty particular. It's a story about um, a man and a horse. So one of the horses that I have named Odessa that I took on the trip on the Klamath, she is a Mustang. She was born in the wild and she was captured by the U.S. government when she was one year old. Um, then she was taken to a holding facility where she lived for several years, not doing too much. And before she came to live with me, she was tamed and trained by a prisoner in Sacramento. So they take these prisoners who don't really know much about training horses and they teach them how to tame these wild horses so that they can be brought to homes like mine. And when I was writing the song, I just had this concept in my mind of writing a song from the perspective of the man who tamed my wild horse, um, singing a song to her. And so you hear in the lyrics of the song, it's so today we find ourselves held by the bars, barbs upon the wire, this life isn't ours. I guess something just wasn't right with you and me. We'll have to change to something strange, so they'll let us be. So that song is kind of about the ways in which they find them both, they, they find themselves both incarcerated by the U.S. government, perhaps for, perhaps for reasons that don't make a lot of sense to them, but because society and the way our culture is doesn't accept them, they have to change. Not necessarily because there's something wrong with them, but they just have to change in order to deal. She has to become tame, and he has to become a different person. In particular, the reason why I wrote that song about that is also because our culture is dealing with a lot of growing pains in the world of mass incarceration, and I think that 
I just wanted to explore a little bit into the psyche of why somebody would be brought into prison and maybe the reasons that are more complicated than we'd like to think for them being there. Uh, and Odessa figures heavily in your uh, in your story, in, in the video, as a matter of fact. And, and uh, that was kind of even an exciting part. Mm-hmm. Uh, you absolutely, Odessa had a, oh, that's really wild. Uh, Odessa had an issue with being tied up. Mm-hmm. Oh, that, yeah, that's very symbolic. Yeah, that really is. <laughs> I never thought about it that way. Yeah, and, and yeah. you ended up having to cut her free. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, you cut yourself. Yeah. Oh, it's very true. <laughs> there, wow. <laughs> We're making a lot of discoveries, I think, tonight. Yes. Uh, is we, this like we, therapy? Is this free? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that's what we do here. I guess maybe my last question for you would be, you studied environmentalism. I think you studied uh, land management. You That was your focus of study when you were in college, correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, then as you transitioned into this project, it, it was less, I don't know, it seemed like it was less studying what was going on as it was, I don't know, documenting and, and, and sharing and experiencing and being a part of. Mm-hmm. Um, do you feel that that is a continually shifting thing inside of you as you embark on this next project? Is the goal to educate? Is the goal to document? Is the goal activism? Uh, what is the intent, do you feel, uh, beyond just creating music? I think the intent um, behind this project is to give myself the opportunity to dive deeper into the act of creativity in relation to the environment. I find that I oftentimes avoid creativity like so many people. It's deeply painful to create something writing or music or painting or anything like that is very difficult for us because we have so much shame and fear of what's going to happen. But I still find myself when given the opportunity to create that creativity is what gives me the most peace. And I also find that when I can create and get to hear other people's stories or other people's work or other people being the mountains work or whatever it is, that really makes me feel whole. But I have found that being focused on creation instead of being focused on um, necessarily getting a response from people validating me, just focusing on creation as a means of finding meaning. I think that that is a brilliant way to end the episode. Um, and I just want to say on behalf of both Tom and me oh, yeah. that uh, the care that you've put into making these songs and documenting your experiences yeah. is truly wonderful. And you were going to say something? And the care your band takes when they play. Uh, <laughs> I had a chance to watch you guys play, and it was, it was beautiful. Thank it you. It really was. So thank you so much for that. Um, and now the very songs about the very places that we discussed are, are coming up next. For the first time ever, Ismay is going to play a set of music on the stage of the Phoenix Theater. Yes, so one more time, Thank you. thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you both. We are grateful. Thank you.
Is it danger in all that I see?